I am Daniel Lucas and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that I read for the last 40 years. And today, I have my special guest, the author of several books and of course, best-selling author to no other than Miss Safa Bernal. Bernal, how can you effectively build tension and conflict within the limited space of a short story? The first thing I like to do when you have, you know, say a 5,000 word story. So something that's not, you know, not micro, not flash, but it's still, you know, it's still a short story. I like to use the setting. Um, So we walk into a room. To one person, they're walking into a room, the walls are pink, there's a bright circle of white light at the top from this incredible kind of almost neon source. You know, there's a non-linear shaped desk, so it's a little bit more kind of organic and things like that. They walk in and they go, oh my goodness, this is such a, a nice place. I feel so cheerful, Ah, you know, and they set that mood for themselves with how that character experiences the space. Somebody else walks in and it's like a vampire going into the sun. You know, ah, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, you've got the 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 throb of their, you know, of their eyes at both the color and the nature of the light. They've got, you know, that sense of like, well, this isn't the way an office is supposed to be. And all of a sudden, so you're building tension by how characters are experiencing the same thing. Uh, Because then too, it's, it's a little bit more, what's the right word? It's, it's cost effective in word count. You know, you're only explaining one room, but the two people's experiences of it all of a sudden gives you an instant kind of payout on where both people are and what they're going through in their minds and the whole thing. So that's one way I like to build tension. Another way is a little bit more on the poetry side. You know, as as the fiction gets shorter, I do believe you can add in more and more kind of poetry style types of ideas. And that's the repetition of a certain line. And this one phrase or this one line, you know, it's changing meaning every single time you hear it. And it's done so well in poetry and things, you know, just having that one line at the end of a stanza return But because of what's happened in the stanza, that line starts morphing. The line hasn't changed, but its meaning has. And so I think that in shorter fiction, you can do that kind of thing more often, bring back that image that you had in, say, the introduction or right at the beginning. And then as it starts to morph, you're building this tension and building this sort of grip with the readers now it can be done too much <laughs> you know it can be like you know oh my goodness yes i know <laughs> you know the ducks are in the pond i get it <laughs> but uh, i do love that subtle repetition it's just 
it's just gorgeous. Um, another way I like to develop tension is just through the conversations. So, you know, obviously dialogue is an important thing. You don't need dialogue in order to build tension, you know, just saying, you know, but you can kind of put a conversation in a blender and add espresso in a short story. You know, you have more license to believably go from one to 90 on the scale of emotional intensity and back. You can have those those waves that I like to put in, in my fiction of highly tense, very evocatively emotional moments. And then the relief later on, which is usually a place of calm or a place of humor. I find calm a little bit more medium but you know humor can kind of really break the tension and then whoo yeah okay I, I can handle more now um you can have those waves be so much more intense with short fiction because people are reading it with that held breath it's it's a 90 minute movie not the entire season of a tv show you know, so you've got things a little bit more fast, a little bit quicker. You can kind of get into things, you know, with uh, Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, when I built the tension between, you know, Carolee and her husband, um, Colm, it started off as just a man coming home with a bottle of whiskey and his wife being like, ah, he brought me a gift. What did he do? And it's this almost completely normal conversation at the beginning until the tension ramps up with Colm admitting that he promised their son to the fairy queen. And all of a sudden there is that stillness. And all of a sudden that kitchen knife that she has been, you know, touching or holding because she was making dinner, you know, he walks in and she's cutting vegetables. So, you know, he takes the knife out of her hand. He puts it down. He goes, let me get you some whiskey. And she's like, okay, what did you do? But that, that image of the knife is brought back about three times in that conversation twice uh, without Carolee really thinking about it without any intention there. And then the third time that intention was very firm with Carolee's character. And that's how I like repetition. Every single time you see it, something has changed. When you're building tension, intention of the character matters. If the character's just kind of going through it and it's just, you know, they're just sort of existing within this thing and all this, all this stuff is outward kind of happening to them, then that's only going to build so much tension. But the second something happens and it is that character's doing or it's that character's kind of mindset that is bringing them to that space. All of a sudden, the tension is ramped up. Interesting, Ms. Bernal. So what techniques can you use to create a vivid and immersive settings in a short story? The first thing I like to do, uh, now this is not essential, and you know, I talk about this with people who write, okay, so people who write science fiction and fantasy, it's a little different from people who are writing, you know, other kinds of fiction. Um, the number one thing I like to do is think of a place I've been. It is so much easier, in my opinion, to create that space while thinking of a place I have legitimately inhabited 
not for long. Maybe it's a place I was only in for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour sometime on a vacation, you know, a coffee shop in, you know, by Kensington Park, you know, or maybe it's a, um, you know, a bit of hallway in a business tower where you had to go to, you know, have a job interview, that kind of thing. But I always like to at least attempt to have a place in mind that I can kind of restructure somewhere I've been. And I find that when you are not just fabricating a space out of midair, you can fabricate elements out of it, but you still have that sense of habitation. You have that sense of, you know, grounded nature, you know, it's so, <clears throat> you know, Carolee, going back to Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, Carolee and Colm's Kitchen, you know, it has the rickety table from the 70s that they got as a hand-me-down when they got married in the 90s. It's got, you know, the kind of almost paisley wallpaper that the early 90s in Ireland had uh, going on. You know, it's got the sink board beside the stove, the stove a little bit rickety. It's got those things that reminded me of my kitchen when I was in my grandma's house growing up in uh, <clears throat> the 90s. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a place that I've kind of been I can visualize it in my head I understand where those you know those little beats are happening within the space and then from there I'm building more things to it oh there's a back door and a side door there's this there's that okay those things are different but I'm using the groundwork the foundation of a place that I've been and then adding the fantastic on top of that now I do the same thing with science fiction I start with that sensation of a room. Maybe it's not the entire room and it's not made of, you know, stucco and lumber and drywall. It's made of some odd polymer they got from an alien race that started trading with humanity. Maybe this room is completely different, but there is still that organically shaped desk. There is still that light that looks like you know, a planet inside a nebula, there's still some, some recognizable things to sort of ground and attach people in. Um, Cause what I find happens otherwise, especially in fantasy and science fiction, that's when, and mostly in fantasy, I should say, cause science fiction, you can still kind of make things parallel to this world a lot more. Most of the time when I see a setting that's not working in fantasy specifically, it's, because they're just, you know, kind of subconsciously trying to do that. But no, 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 they're recreating everything. No, you don't understand because this, this place has this and this and this and this. How does that work? And when you push on it a little bit, it's almost like a house of cards. And then the setting starts falling apart because really their mind wants to connect with something we've already seen. Your mind, your reader's mind wants to connect with an experience that it can share. Yes, it's reading um, you know, reading fiction is about expanding oneself and about learning more and enriching our lives and, you know, experiencing the titivation of good fiction, experiencing, you know, all of these amazing kinds of stories and having that moment of escapism. But humans are wonderful pattern recognizers. And if there's a pattern present, we want to make sure in our fiction that it's intentional. And so we already know where we've grounded it. Then we can kind of work from there and add those fantasy elements to make sure that uh, 
that they fit within the world. So, Ms. Bernal, is it essential to have a clear resolution in any short story? Or it can be end mm. of ambiguity? Okay, so there's a couple ways of looking at this. Uh, something has to change by the end of a story. Even if, let's say we're talking a, um, well, Caleb Matheson story like the Lemia. Yes, you know, in the beginning of the story and in the end of the story, Caleb Matheson will have come from his home where his daughters are, and then he will return to his home where his daughters are. So nothing that way has changed. There's parallel motion where that's concerned. Um, he's still the same person, basically, both ends of the story. You know, he is this, you know, judge from the Judge of Mystic Sega. You know, he is this man going around attempting to make sure that he can keep the peace and he can keep magic out of Midgard, uh, magic that will harm anybody out of Midgard. You know, all of that stuff is the same. There is no resolution to that. There's nothing. You can have that be the same. But through the course of the Lamia, his mental landscape changes a great deal. And so there has to be something that changes, whether it's a motivation, whether it's a psychological frame of mind, whether it is the decision to go back to a situation that's not as awesome, or whether it's the decision to return to something that is awesome and not run away from it. You know, whatever it is, if you're not going to have that resolution be within an external case of the plot, then you need to have some form of internal resolution or um, unless you're writing something a little bit more dark or grim dark or a little bit closer to horror, because in horror, you can leave things on that thin, shrill, violent note of tension and then just have it end. You know, you can do that in horror because it's meant to unsettle somebody. <laughs> but the thing that writers need to remember is it's meant to unsettle somebody. If nothing has happened, if things are just going back to the same thing that they were doing before, you know, if nothing structurally or mentally or emotionally has changed or developed, then that's more likely going to either unsettle a reader, which can be used to great effect and can be a good storytelling device, or it's going to make that reader feel like that's kind of the moment, yeah, I personally experienced is in editing short fiction where readers go, what, what was the point of that? Why did I read that story? What, like, oh my gosh, what is that? You know, that's usually the readers, the readers who will disconnect because there's not enough resolution. There's not a lot of something in the end. At least, you know, if you're writing a story about a woman who's attempting to leave her broken marriage and by the end of the story, you know, she go she walks by and she's got her bag of things and she's going to do it she's going to get on that bus she's going to leave and she's never going to come back and he's never going to find her and she's she's done and she walks by and by the end of that short story she crosses the street goes into the dry cleaner picks up his dry cleaning and takes it home and she's lost her resolve she still had that moment of resolve to lose there is still motion there even though she ended up not leaving that marriage and she ended up doing the same thing she always does, picking up his dry cleaning 
and taking it home. And you know she's going to hang that up. You know that she's going to start making dinner. You know that all of that stuff is going to remain the same. But mentally, she has found a reason for it. Or, you know, in some cases, she's given up. You know, but there's still motion there. Very well said, Miss Bernal. But before we go on, I want to shout out to the people listening in Japan. Because according to my uh, feedback, I have a lot for new listeners in Japan. Because in Tokyo, I got 67% audience share. Aichi at 11%, Miss Miyazaki at 4%, Gafu at 2%, Yogo at 2%, Kumamoto at 2%, Kanegawa, Hokkaido, and a lot more. Arigato Saimas, hi, Japan, for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world, like Miss Safa Bernal. <laughs> <laughs> so Miss Bernal, how do you handle pacing in a short story to maintain reader engagement? Okay, so for pacing, I make sure that every paragraph in a short story, something happens that moves things along. You know, within a novel, it's every chapter, something happens that something moves along. You know, you've got a little bit more space to kind of linger on something. Uh, but in a short story, I'm making sure that every paragraph or two, there is something that's different. I'm not just spending three, four or five paragraphs necessarily setting some form of scene that, you know, just kind of sits there. And then 10 paragraphs later, we see some motion. We don't have time for that. So we want to set the established stuff in the beginning of where we're at. What's going on? Where is that initial spark of the story? Whether it's in medias res or we're starting at, at very much at the beginning, um, we are setting that kind of moment of stillness in the beginning. Uh, and then we can go from there and, and pop in all of these different changes, whether it's a conversation or a line of thought or, you know, a shadow in the corner or whether it's the, uh, you know, the metaphor of say in Clarice Lispector's um, story, a cockroach that's found in the maid's room after the maid has left, you know, that something has happened. There's realizations, even if everything happening is, is in the mental landscape of the character, if we're in first person or if we're really tight inside a character's head, you know, and we are able to see, uh, you know, inside their mind and their motivations. And even if there's just, you know, every paragraph, there's something, there's something added, taken away or modified to the original goal. And that's how I track pacing. Um, most of the time, I'm also looking at settings where, unless you're going incredibly poetic, I'm looking at settings where people are, I like to engage with settings where a character is physically doing something within them, not just being present, unless the story calls for that, but really doing something in it, like somebody throwing the door open into their bedroom, throwing their jacket down, their keys, their wallet, everything else, and tossing themselves onto the bed. And you get a sense of this, this space, you know, the one overhead light he turned on as he threw himself onto the Spider-Man bedspread, you know, that he'd had since he was 12. And it didn't matter if he was 27, he still kind of liked it you know, and all of these different things, like 
I am using interaction with the space to provide information about the space because that's inherently more interesting right away. Definitely. What are some tips you are crafting realistic dialogue in a short story? How do people talk? <laughs> How do people yes. talk? Definitely. You know, listen to conversations you've actually had in your head. And I'm now I'm not saying here what some people do where, you know, oh, yeah, just, you know, write down conversations you've had and use those. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if everybody in your life thinks that you're writing down everything for a story, they're going to start shutting up. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> Christmas might be a time for family, but that family is going to be staring at you from across the room. Um no. Um, Is that gossiping or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 gossiping to the entire world. Um, <laughs> oh man, that is actually something to talk about with memoir too. Um, oh yes. But listen to how people talk. They'll drop words. They'll you know things like that. I think you know, especially if somebody has characters in their book that are not necessarily reflective of their personal experience and how they talk and their dialect, it becomes even more important to have people in your life who are of that dialect. You know, when it comes to when dialogue where I have, say, somebody from the north of England, I've got friends and compatriots in Yorkshire and in uh, Manchester that'll be like, hey, I'm working on the scene. Can you read this over for me? Oh, yeah, mate. No, no, we don't talk like that. Like, and all of a sudden, they're going to change words here and there. And, you know, they're going to be like, ah, you know what, use this idiom. We really like this one, you know, they're going to make it more authentic to those, those voices. And I think with dialogue, the thing that I find the most strained is when people go into their head and go, well, I watched a film once that had this kind of person talking in it. So I'm going to use that kind of dialogue because I saw it in a film, or I saw it on a TV show. Or, you know, I saw it on a YouTube video, so that must be how people talk. But if they, if you've never experienced, you know, people outside of your little, you know, your bubble, that we all have bubbles of varying degrees, then you don't really know if that's third, fourth, fifth, or sixth hand information. You know, so you need to find people who talk the way you want your characters to talk and make friends. I know it's a little bit hard for some authors to kind of get out there and find these communities I find Discord to be amazing for that. Also Twitch, you know, there is a vibrant writing community on Twitch and it is full of every kind of person you can imagine. And there are so many Discord servers full of authors and of writers and people who just love to read, who are there to be like, hey, yeah, what do you need? What do you want? Let's talk it out. Let's see how this goes. Well, you see, we don't really use that language here or, oh yeah, you know, I had this the other day. Um... There was this exchange in my Discord server where two people were talking. One of them was uh, a younger person and the other one was older. And the younger person, oh, man, that's so lit. You know, my mom talks like that. <laughs> and the older person was like, what? It's like, oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the most Zoomer stuff came out of this younger person's chat. And the other person was like, oh, uh, I, um, and they required translation. But that person had been writing a story with a Zoomer in it and didn't know any of the lingo. Well, you need to talk to a Zoomer. 
actually communicate with somebody that, you know, has that kind of tone that uses those idioms that, that has that frame of speech that has that, you know, dialect within them. Like that's part of the research of being a writer, as much as it's a wonderful solitary thing where you can sit in front of a computer and create entire worlds and universes, you know, with a couple clicks of a fingers or the stroke of a pen, you need to get out there. And if you cannot get out there physically, you cannot like go see the world on a whistle stop tour of every single continent, then the internet is a fantastic place for that. Listen to podcasts, go into discord servers, make some friends, say hi to people. You know, I'm, I will guarantee you as much as you are learning from others, others can also learn from you. Totally agree, Ms. Bernard. Should you outline your short story before writing it, or can you just start with just an idea? I've done both to varying effects. The stories that have taken less time for me to write, uh, when it comes down to brass tacks, the ones that have taken less editing, in my experience, have been the ones that I laid out a little. I use ClickUp. ClickUp is a productivity app. It's actually, you know, meant for businesses and teamwork and things like that. But I use ClickUp to outline my stuff. And I have different lists and I can put things in different places and I have a whiteboard and I have all of the, those kinds of things. And I'm able to kind of make a short outline for everything I want. And for me, the most bare bones outline is who is it? What do they want in the beginning and what do they want in the end? And then my other question being, what do I want the readers to feel? And I have not necessarily, when I started that story, you know, gone 250 words and then this is going to happen, then 250 words more and then that is going to happen. And then 500 words later, this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden we have this integration of, you know, you can do that. You can structure your plots to the point of, say, what I learned how to do in uh, script writing in film school, where you're like, okay, at exactly this kind of timeline in the movie, there needs to be a beat change. Exactly this kind of timeline in the movie, there needs to be a um, a climactic rise. You know, exactly this time in the movie, uh, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a softer scene because that's usually when people need to go to the bathroom or, you know, refill their popcorn. You know, there's a structure that is quite firm depending on the genre that you're in. Uh, you don't have to be that firm, <laughs> I don't think, unless you want to be. I've I've known some people who write like that. All power to them. You do you. That is, you know, fantastic. You can be incredibly detailed. But for me, I always start a story knowing at least who the main character is, where they start, and where I want them to end up. That's it. Otherwise, I find that the rabbit trails that I go through um, will end up taking me so much longer in the end than if I had just sat down with an intention. And two, I think readers for the most part can, unless it's done incredibly well, can very much, they can sense when a writer did not necessarily know where the story was going to go until that halfway through. They can sense that because the pacing is off most of the time, unless it's done really well, which it can be, but. Did you apply those attributes to your latest anthology, Macabre and the Lancet? Um, yes, I did. So Macabre and Monstrous, I planned out Whiskey and Sinner's Blood. I had this outline for years. Well, I actually had the short story itself. I had the first version of it. And this is where, okay, this is where I'll tell you. When I first wrote 
the story that was called Lavender Blue, which turned into um, Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, it did not have an outline. It was just, let's start on this adventure and see where I go. <laughs> and you can see how that affected the writing style because it took about seven years to get to a point where I could publish it. I basically rewrote the entire thing with an outline and then it worked. So, you know, speaking from some experience in that one, um, that was one of the first short stories I had written in the Judge of Mystics world. I love those sort of pared down intentional, you know, outlines. With the Cottonmouth Smile, it started with a motif. It started with this one image of a device meant to take this genetically modified super soldier and keep him in prison. And well, okay, yeah, but how do you do that? How do you do that? You have to restrict movement. You have to restrict oxygen, you know, because <laughs> giant muscles, all of these kinds of things, they take oxygen in order to function. So I started from that image of this device meant to keep Tristram in uh, in the prison cell. Uh, and of course, he's in there under no fault of his own because of the great villain that's going to be happening in the, the Lieben cycle and the whole thing, you know, but the the main thing was that motif. And then working around that, the question of how do you keep a mind imprisoned came to me. And so I knew that this story was going to be about Tristram physically imprisoned and then mentally shackled by the end. And so what would motivate, you know, that sort of mental shackle? Well, usually the hope of rescue and then a kind of shattering of that hope in a way, or even just a doubt of that hope. And this is a, this is a horror anthology. So it was meant to be a horror story. So uh, I should say that I don't normally write things that are that um, depressing. Um, <laughs> but with him, I had that motif. I had where I needed to go. And then I added in Lima, who is uh, Tristram's love interest in a future Lieben cycle book. And then it was, okay, there we go. And then I just sat down in one session and I bet I, I wrote it out. Like I all 8,000 words. It was just, it was done in a couple of hours, but I had those elements that I knew. And then it was time to give my chicken scratch to my editor and talk some things through and edit and, and then have it, uh, have it go from there. With uh, the Lamia, the same thing. I started with Caleb Matheson, this kind of, you know, man in authority, la, 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 la. And then something in the Lamia, in the first part of the Lamia, shakes him. It shakes him desperately and to the core. And then he has to figure out from there how he's not only going to live his life, but how he's going to raise his daughters. Because it's not just you know, X, Y, Z thing happened in history. And so certain people should feel guilty. It's how do I raise my girls? So this never happens again. How do I be a single dad and a good father? How do I make sure that these girls are taken care of? You know, and it, it is a monster story. It is a story with a fight in it. It's a story where it starts off with him dragging himself through West West 12th and um, almost to Granville Street in Vancouver, trying to get to people so the monster doesn't get him. You know, like it it has all those those kind of monster epic kind of 
things. Inside, though, it's a story about fatherhood and what it takes for a man to make sure that when he looks at his girls, he knows he is giving them the world and that they have the ability to take hold of that, go, thanks, daddy, and then take it even farther and be even greater and be even better. So that was kind of the mental package, the gift wrap that I put around the story. The rest of it kind of flowed from there because everything was referring back to that ideal. Everything was referring back either as a cautionary tale or as part of the dialogue. You know, it had a point. It had a perspective line. I, I think outlines to me are a little bit like when you're painting a picture or you're drawing something and you put that perspective dot on the page right in the beginning. Like if you're using Procreate or something like that, and, and I do, I use Procreate for my, for my art. Um, I'll sometimes put those guidelines on and I'll just pick the perspective, whether it's one or two point perspective, I'll pick those perspective lines. That's what an outline is. It's not the drawing itself, but without those perspective lines, something might look a little off. Something might be a bit off kilter. Something might not fit the perspective that you're going for as much. And you might have to edit and adjust a little bit more than you would have necessarily otherwise if, if you didn't have it. So it's, it's, it's a little guide. It's not the whole thing. You can obviously modify as you go. And there's plenty of people I know who write, they just start with an idea and then they just go until it's, it's finished. But, um, especially with short fiction, I find you need to be intentional with everything. And intentionality also includes an outline in my perspective and in my opinion. So. Yes. Well done, Ms. Bernal. And I'm inviting you to listen to my other podcast, Food 101, our fourth season with Jeff Alessandro, one of the best executive chef in one of five-star restaurants in downtown Toronto. So one more, our books are out. Not only one, but 13 volumes, people. Food 101, volume one, basics until 13 is the only the books that you need. How to create a delicious food. Available on Amazon and leading online bookstores worldwide. So, Miss Bernal, can you please invite our listeners to support your two anthologies? Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening today. As we said, my name is Safa Burnell. You can find my website at safaburnell.com. That is S-A-P-H-A-B-U-R-N-E-L-L.com. You will be able to find links to all of my works of fiction, all of my books, including Lenses, Macabre and Monstrous, Futures Lens, uh, and then usurper kings which is my poetry collection as well and i also have information on my novels and my ttrpg one shot uh coco craze on there which is a kid friendly 60 to 90 minute tabletop game that you can play with your family this holiday season all of that is available at safabernell.com and anywhere books are sold and I would yes. really appreciate it if, if everyone, uh, if you found something, there's probably something. There is. Like. Yes. <laughs> Definitely forgive people for last minute gift. If you are uh, interested to books, recommend Miss Bernal novels and anthology. Let's support her because if you support her, more, more anthology and novel to come. 
Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love to hear the sounds of that. <laughs> 50, uh, 100 more books to come from Miss Bernal. Okay, people. And the audiobook is also available for uh, for your novels, Miss Bernal, right? We are actually working on uh, the audiobooks now. We would have had a couple out before Christmas, but oh, um, I am actually narrating the audiobooks myself. No, that is not something every author necessarily can do um, or should do. I'll just put it that way. You know, <laughs> but I do have a history of performance and voice acting. So uh, we will be getting a couple of those audiobooks out within the next couple of, of months, just as I recover. So uh, you'll be able to hear Caleb Matheson and Charisma and Carolee and Colm have that epic husband and wife fight in Whiskey and Sinner's <laughs> Blood, I where he keeps that. trying to pour her whiskey. Uh, you'll hear those as uh, quote-unquote intended. I'll say quote-unquote intended, you know, it's, everybody has their own, their own uh, flavor, but it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, looking forward to it, Miss mm -hmm. Bernal and Bodycat people. See you soon. <laughs>